0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello, this is David Rutledge. You're with me right here in the Philosopher's Zone. Welcome to the show. Billionaires, they get a lot of stick these days, don't they? There's something about just having that kind of wealth that makes you a conspicuous emblem of inequality and injustice. But then, are they all that bad? If you think of someone like Bill Gates, for example, he's pouring vast rivers of his own money into healthcare in developing countries, looking to eradicate malaria and polio and things like that. He's made it his life's work. He's set up a global philanthropic foundation. Surely Bill Gates is the very model of a modern, morally praiseworthy rich guy. Well, according to my guest this week, the ethics of philanthropy on a global scale are very complicated and concerning. His name is Willem David Blunt, and, well, I'm going to let him introduce himself.
0: I'm Dr. Gwilom David Blunt. I'm a senior lecturer in international politics at City University of London. I'm a political philosopher who's really interested in global poverty. Uh, but my interest in global poverty is a bit different than other people working in debates on global distributive justice because I'm interested in imperfect uh, world theory. So looking at what do people who experience injustice do as a response to sort of prevailing injustice. So it's quite different. Than say Rawlsian ideal theory, which asks us, you know, what's the best possible world we can live in? You know, what's the ideal social institutions we should pursue? Which I think is a valuable pursuit in philosophy. But I like to bring philosophy to the real world, right? I want to ask people, what do we do in the world we live in? And that applies to people experiencing injustice, and it also applies to people experiencing privilege. Uh, You know, this could be people, you know, like probably our listeners who live in Australia and have sort of life in a developed G20 country. Uh, but also to billionaires, right? People who have immense amount of wealth. Uh, What do they owe to people experiencing injustice and inequality? Uh, That's sort of my quick take about what I do in political philosophy.
1: Gwillem David Blunt is currently living in Sydney, and I caught up with him this week to talk about a paper of his that was published last month in the journal International Affairs. It's titled The Gates Foundation, Global Health and Domination, A Republican Critique of Transnational Philanthropy.
0: Transnational philanthropy is really interesting because of the diversity of what the ultra-wealthy pursue. Uh, some things seem relatively trivial, you know, endowing art galleries, uh, endowing opera houses. Uh, not to say that the arts are trivial, but like these are not life and death. But what I'm interested in is where they get into things like global health, uh, things like development, and things like education, which are a lot of transnational philanthropy focuses on and has focused on for a very long time. Uh, the roots of contemporary philanthropy go back to the Gilded Age where you had people like uh, Carnegie, Rockefeller, Ford developing foundations, developing trusts, which created a large number of public universities, libraries, uh, educational focused institutions. And this sounds great, right? You know, and this has been continued by contemporary philanthropy, but they've gone bigger. Old school philanthropy tended to be state-focused. If we look at things like the Gates Foundation, this is a transnational enterprise. It reaches across the globe. It deals with things like global health, global development, tackling inequality, tackling things like the climate crisis. There tends to be a bigger picture view of contemporary philanthropy, looking at the challenges that humanity is facing in our immediate uh, you know, political space, but also in the long term, looking at what the world will be like 100 years from now. These are big picture people pursuing big
1: challenges. It's such a huge and, as we'll be discussing, globally pervasive phenomenon, transnational philanthropy. But in this paper that you've written on the Gates Foundation, you you mentioned more or less in passing that in all the literature on global poverty and distributive justice that's been produced over the past few years, transnational philanthropy has been a relatively neglected topic, which I find really interesting. Why do you think that is? It's interesting because transnational philanthropy is a topic of discussion when we are
0: looking at literatures on development, you know, empirically focused academic work looks at philanthropy extensively. Political philosophy doesn't. Global distributive justice generally sort of says, well, what's the problem? These are the good guys, right? They're helping ease inequality. They don't create problems of justice, Uh, especially when you look at things like effective altruism, people like Peter Singer and William McCaskill. They actively court billionaire philanthropists to get them to use their money to effectively alleviate the burdens of poverty. So when it does get mentioned, it tends to be, you know, positive. Uh, people don't see it as a particularly problematic issue. Uh, but we're dealing with organizations that touch on basic rights, health, education, prosperity. These are core values for human beings. So just because they're good guys, doesn't mean we should ignore them. And it's an interesting sort of story. Uh, When I started writing on this about a decade ago, I was making a very similar argument to the one that I made uh, in this article in International Affairs. And I was pitching it around to university presses and to academic journals. And I got a lot of pushback from them. Uh, People did not want to publish something beating up on do-gooders, on people who are out there making a difference in the world. And I got a, a great rejection letter. Uh, as an academic, you know, academics love rejection letters, uh, which said, we're not going to publish this article because it gives the wealthy an excuse not to give to poverty. Uh, it provides them with cover. It ought not to be published. And that's the first time, you know, this is when I was a junior academic that I thought, oh, the peer review system actually isn't necessarily completely impartial. This was someone saying we shouldn't publish this because it will have bad consequences, not because it's a wrong argument or it's a false argument or it's made on bad premises. It's because it has this consequentialist uh, negative impact. And this tells you a lot about how people think about philanthropy in political philosophy. As I said, effective altruists really focused on outcomes. You know, how do we make the world a better place? But it doesn't really think about the institutions that get us there and how they affect people. Because we are dealing with basic rights, we're dealing with rights, there needs to be something like accountability,
1: surely. In this paper that you've written, you focus on the Gates Foundation. And is that because the Gates Foundation is in some sense emblematic of the way that billionaire philanthropists in general conduct their business? Why that particular focus? So the Gates Foundation
0: was my focus in this paper
1: for two reasons. The first is that
0: it is a massive organization one of the biggest transnational philanthropies in the world. It has an endowment of about $50 billion. Every year it spends around $4.5 to $5 billion on various projects, which to give your listeners a sense of that, that is basically what Australia spends on official development assistance a year. It is a major player in global development and in global health. So just the scale was interesting. The other thing that drew my attention that it's a very effective institution. This is excellent philanthropy. It does good work. It saves millions of lives. And I thought to myself, well, if my concerns about philanthropy attach to the Gates Foundation, then they'll attach to pretty much every other foundation that's working out there. So, you know, if I wanted an easy task, I would look at the Trump Foundation, which was shut down by the state of New York for fraud. But I didn't. I wanted to look at the best of the philanthropists, and Gates is the best of the philanthropists, I think.
1: It's an interesting sort of structure that the, the Gates Foundation has and that philanthropic foundations in general have. You, you've described them as, a, as a, a curious mixture of the private and the public. What do you mean by that exactly? They are curious institutions. I mean, part of
0: me sort of compares them to a platypus, right? You know, when they first found platypuses, they brought them back to Europe, and people were just like, what is this thing, this, this duck beaver uh, with poison, uh, little spurs on its legs. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And philanthropies are the same way. These are private organizations, uh, but they're not like a, a corporation, right? They don't have shareholders to whom they're accountable. Uh, they are privately endowed. They have sometimes large amounts of wealth. If we're talking about something like the Gates Foundation, they look like a family owned business in this sense, but they're not for profit, right? They're not trying to make money. They're not trying to enrich themselves. They're trying to help people. They are publicly oriented. They want to improve people's access to healthcare, access to education, access to prosperity. Uh, This is not normally something we associate with private enterprises. And they're distinct from non-governmental organizations, now your typical charities, which rely on donors. They don't have to rely on donors. They have this big pile of money that they sit on and they disperse as they see fit. So there is this weird conglomeration of the public and the private. It's a, the idea of doing good, but in a way that suits, well, the ends of a particular set of people who are
1: running these organizations. And their power, I guess it's worth just underlining here, their power lies in the fact that they're capable of shaping not just the lives of groups of people or communities or even nations, but they're, they're capable of shaping the basic, structure of global society itself, right?
0: Yeah. And this is something people tend to forget, or at least to neglect. These foundations, they're not giving their money away in sort of the sense that I would give away, you know, a few bucks to someone on the street. They're using their money to shape international institutions. And the Gates Foundation is a fantastic example of this. Its work in global health has been incredibly influential, but it brings a certain perspective, into these institutions. And it is a perspective of, well, high-tech Silicon Valley capitalism, right? They want to use the market, they want to use research to improve people's access to global health. So you see the Gates Foundation helping to set up things like uh, Gavi, the Global Alliance for Vaccination and Immunization. This is a organization that is set up to improve access to vaccines, which is absolutely fantastic because there was a big dip in vaccine uptake in the early 21st century. This has created market-based incentives for big pharma companies to research uh, diseases that affect people living in severe poverty, diseases that they wouldn't research otherwise, because people in poverty don't have the money to buy treatment. But by creating this pool of capital that guarantees a price that allows these companies to say, well, okay, we're gonna look into disease X and we're going to make money from it, uh, this will sort of shift the global burden of health a little bit in a more positive direction. It's fantastic, but this is shaping global health. And some critics might say, and I will be among them, well, sometimes it's not a high-tech vaccine intervention that we need to solve a health problem. Sometimes we need effective sewers. Sometimes we need effective public health institutions, uh, effective healthcare provisions. And the Gates Foundation Uh, you know, there is a certain sense that they are very skeptical of working with the state, uh, on many levels. So the idea of, say, using the Gates Foundation to strengthen something like the National Health Service in the UK, but in a developing state, uh, that is something that they're not really interested in. And that has a knock on effect, right? It has a knock on effect on people doing research, people who want that Gates Foundation funding. They're going to orientate themselves to this particular market-oriented, high-tech interventionist vision of global health. And that has a ripple across the entire planet. It affects people who are living in severe poverty. But as we saw in COVID, it affects people like us too, right? When the World Health Organization lost the United States as its primary or its biggest funder, because President Trump, in a fit of pique, pulled America out of the WHO, the biggest funder for the WHO was the Gates Foundation. In the middle of a once-in-a- generation health crisis, a private organization was funding the WHO. And this, to me, it's a bit of an alarm bell, right? Because there's no accountability. We talked about, say, America funding the WHO. Well, America is a democratic state that has levels of accountability, checks and balances, uh, where spending gets scrutinized. Uh, It is more public, whereas the Gates Foundation, it has a much freer hand than a democratic state.
1: Well, let's talk about domination, because when you say that transnational philanthropy poses a, a serious problem of justice, domination is at the heart of that problem. Domination in, in what sense exactly? What, what are the, the necessary conditions to say that we have a, a situation of domination?
0: Okay, domination is one of those terms that you get in philosophy that has a lot of different meanings for a lot of different people. When I talk about domination, I'm coming from a Republican perspective. And by republican I'm not talking about Donald Trump, I'm not talking about Ronald Reagan, I'm not even talking about people who want to ab- abolish the monarchy. Uh, Republicanism is a theory of freedom and government as Philip Pettit says. And this theory of freedom says you are not free if you are under the arbitrary power of someone else. So it's not that someone is interfering with you. It's that they have the potential to interfere with you. So what does that actually mean? Well, it means that domination takes place in a social institution or a social relationship. We're not talking about a natural theory of freedom. We're talking about a social theory of freedom. There has to be an asymmetry of power between people or agents. Uh, So one person has more power than the other. And it's not a little bit of power. It has to be a sufficiently asymmetric distribution that there is dependency and dependency means the weaker agent can't walk away. Or if they walk away, they pay a really big price for doing so, so that it's unreasonable. And the final little bit is that it is arbitrary meaning that one agent can simply interfere in the choices of the other whenever they want to. That is what I would call interactional arbitrariness. But there's also a second level, which is systemic arbitrariness, which is where someone can't contest the terms of social cooperation that they engage in. So they might be uh, stuck in a situation where they are assigned a role this role is a humiliating or degrading, or they simply don't want it, but they can't do anything to change it. They are stuck in a corner that they can't contest without breaking the terms of social cooperation, without engaging in resistance, for example. Uh, that is, so sort of, I know a big package of, of ideas, but the easiest way that I find to think of it is to compare it to something in the real world, and usually that would be slavery, for example. This is the paradigmatic example of domination uh, in political philosophy, uh, so we can crack into slavery if you want to. Uh, this is where people start getting a bit um, thinking that it's unfair to say that slavery and philanthropy are the same thing. But there is, in fact, an analogy there uh, if you're in, if if you're interested.
1: Well, well certainly, yeah. I mean, the, the intentions of the Gates Foundation are supposedly honorable. Um, so, yeah, w- what what connection are you drawing there? Right. When people talk about slavery. They often have, and justifiably so, this idea of
0: intense cruelty and callousness. You know, you think of the plantations of the American South, uh, a physical abuse, uh, widespread sexual violence. And that is definitely a part of the slavery story. But it's not the whole thing, with slavery. Domination is not about intention. It's not even about outcome. It is about the structure of power. So we can say that the slave is paradigmatically dominated because their owner has the ability to interfere in any choice they wanna make. And we can see this in history. Slave owners would have to give permission for their slaves to marry. They could sell them at will. There was no external constraint on what they could do. But then there's a systemic background where slaves were unable to contest slavery, right? They didn't have a legal personality or a political personality. We might even say they didn't even have a moral personality in slaveholding societies. They were systemically dominated. But it doesn't mean that you couldn't be a well-looked-after slave, right? There is a history of slaves occupying positions of extreme privilege in history. In the Ottoman Empire, for example, a lot of the major court officials of the sultan were slaves. Uh, the Janissaries, the uh, sort of extremely well-trained part of the Ottoman army, were all slaves of the sultan, and they wielded a lot of power. So just because you're dominated doesn't mean you are necessarily abused But there is a problem there, right? Because being dominated benevolently, being dominated cruelly, well, you're still being dominated. You still don't have control over your own life. So you might be a well-looked after slave, but your life is run on the will of someone else. You always have to look for permission to do something. You always have to sort of doff your cap, tug your forelock. It is demeaning. It diminishes your personal autonomy and it diminishes your idea of self-worth. You know, These are things that are not trivial. So even if you have a benevolent force like philanthropy, uh, it is still intention, intention with this idea that human beings have the right to control their own lives in a fundamental way, that I should be able to choose my idea of a good life and provided that it is commensurate with everyone else's idea of a good life, I should be able to pursue it as I see fit, though looking to beg and scrape to someone. And that is the key Republican idea of liberty. And it is incompatible with domination, whether it is benevolent or
1: malevolent. You're listening to The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, and my guest, Willem David Blunt, who's published a really interesting paper on the ethical problems with transnational philanthropy. That's what we're talking about today. More details on The Philosopher's Zone website. I'm interested in talking further about the ways in which transnational philanthropy meets the necessary conditions for domination that we're talking about. The asymmetric division of power, I mean, this isn't. This sort of seems like an easy one because it's not hard to see, as you've been describing, how the power dynamic is unequally weighted between the philanthropic organisation and its dependents. But you've written about this in terms of epistemic power in particular, which I think is really interesting. What's What's going on there?
0: Yeah, epistemic power is this new idea that's, well, it's, it's probably a, a quite an old idea, but its latest iteration of philosophy, uh, I would point your listeners towards, about Miranda Fricker, who has done a lot of really great work bringing this out. And she basically says epistemic power is control over our ideas of knowledge, right? What counts as true? What counts as being valid? And not only what counts, but who counts, right? Who counts as a knower of things? And if we look at history, we can see that a lot of people have been discounted as knowers of things. Uh, women, for example, up until very recently in the Western world were not seen as being you know, fully rational, right? They were seen as not necessarily being able to participate in politics. Now, we know that that is absolute, you know, uh, I'll be polite. You know, we know that that is wrong, but this existed in the past. Same with indigenous people. They were seen as not actually being fully autonomous agents, not possessing rationality. And we do the same thing today in more subtle ways. We exclude certain people as knowers of things. We prefer to look at people who have power, tend to be exalted as knowers of things. Think about, uh, someone like Elon Musk, right? Elon Musk with his, well, he owns Twitter now, right? And he has millions of followers on Twitter. And he's seen as being someone who is an oracle for space travel, cryptocurrency, uh, even ethics. You know, he's endorsed, uh, uh, William McCaskill's uh, long-termism on, on Twitter. And people say, oh yeah, you know, of course Elon Musk is a super intelligent man. He's the richest man in the world. How could he not be? Well, you don't have to be necessarily a polymath to be a billionaire capitalist. Sometimes you're just lucky. Uh, but we have this system developing that says, well, if you're successful in the market, you must be successful across the board. You must have knowledge of all the various secret uh, dimensions of human life. Uh, so we exalt certain people above others as knowers of things. And this shapes how social institutions develop. You know, like I was saying before, with uh, the development of things like Gavi and the idea of philanthrocapitalism, as it's been called. This idea that we can bring the market to bear as a solver of problems uh, in global inequality. Well, this is a particular way of looking at knowledge. And it excludes people. It excludes non-capitalist interventions. It excludes uh, knowledge on the ground. We tend to look at technocrats, people in the higher echelons of major international organizations like the Gates Foundation. But we ignore the voices of people who are frontline workers, let alone the people who are the end recipients of the benefits of philanthropy. These people tend not to be included in the conversation or they're left as sort of tokens, right? You know, they get trotted out for PR shots, but they're not actually using power to control the way that these organizations operate.
1: Is there also something to say here about the way in which these organizations fund think tanks and universities and other institutions of learning, where if you want your research to be noticed, if you want your research to have a certain kind of prestige, then a grant from the Gates Foundation is, is really where it's all at. Is, is that also the kind of thing you're talking about with epistemic power?
0: Absolutely. Look, I'll, I'll give your listeners some inside baseball. As an academic, you are constantly being pressured to get external funding right? This is how you get research done. Uh, So you I spend a lot of time writing grant proposals, sometimes successful, sometimes not. But I always have in my mind, who am I pitching to? Uh, What is this project? Is this going to attract their attention? Does it fit in with their goals? And if I'm looking at the Gates Foundation, and the Gates Foundation doesn't fund philosophers, but if I'm, say, working in global health, if I'm a medical researcher, I'm going to be thinking about how to attract that money. And if my project doesn't attract money, then people are going to start saying, well, why didn't you get Gates money? Gates money is sort of the primary, the gold standard for global health. So are you working on something that's not really cutting edge? Are you not really the best researcher? And this creates a sort of echo chamber, right? Uh, some people have referred to the Gates' influence on global health as being cartel-like, right? They shape the entire organization of global health and research in a way that knocks on all across the academic sector, that across the uh, you know, pharmaceutical industry. This is a very influential organization that shapes what counts as good research, uh, what counts as uh, effective or progressive research, with few levers of accountability or transparency. Uh, there was a, a recent move uh, in the Gates Foundation to expand its board, and this expansion. When I first heard about it, I was just like, "Oh, I might have to revise my my article." Uh, but the fact is, the people who were put on it. Are people who have worked with the Gates Foundation, people who have worked in organizations that cooperate closely with the Gates Foundation, a few other people who are part of the global ultra wealthy. You know, these are people who are not going to bring critical voices into the management of some of this. It's just expanding the echo chamber, bringing in more parts of, and I hate to use the term the global elite because it sounds like, you know, something that a populist say, but there is a global elite. And they are controlling these extremely influential organizations with little transparency or accountability to people like you and me and our listeners.
1: So in what sense does all of this amount to the arbitrary exercise of power? Because that's another condition for domination, isn't it? That that power should be arbitrarily exercised. The Gates Foundation operates under certain external constraints. I I believe it's subject to oversight by certain state and federal authorities. So in, in what sense Are they exercising arbitrary power?
0: Yeah. So you're right. The Gates Foundation isn't sort of like a pirate ship uh, flying the Atlantic. Uh, It's located in the United States. It has certain legal obligations it needs to fulfill. But these obligations are very, very minimal. Uh, You know, have your books open, uh, disperse a certain amount of your endowment every year. And that's basically it. Don't break criminal law. You know, fair enough. My problem with that is that it's very minimal. Uh, this is not, are not the sort of constraints we would usually associate with an organization that's affecting basic rights. They usually have much more stringent uh, laws constraining them. And the other problem is they're global, right? Because you're accountable to the American government. But if your work winds up affecting people living in Senegal, Central African Republic, Lao, wow, there's not clear mechanisms of accountability to these people. These people who are you know part of what Paul Collier calls the bottom billion, perhaps. Uh, to whom do they appeal if they are unhappy with certain projects at the Gates Foundation? Uh, how do they have an influence over what they're trying to control or, or what's controlling their lives? So this is where the arbitrariness sinks in. Once we go global, the constraints on philanthropy become even more minimalistic. And I think about uh, the reaction to the initial foundations in the Gilded Age, when people like Carnegie and Rockefeller in particular decided to get involved in philanthropy, the American political establishment had a mild freak out because they saw this as a threat to Republican government in the United States. Uh, It was taking over areas like education that were the province of the government for providing public good. And they didn't know whether this was going to undermine uh, the citizens and their loyalty to the state. And there was this very concerted effort to regulate the Rockefeller Foundation by making sure that it had an external board composed of the, Supreme, uh, the chief justice of the Supreme Court, the president, uh, the presidents of Harvard, Yale, and I think Columbia, you know, people outside, I mean, they're elite actors, but they are external to the organization. They gave it a term limit. It had to expire within, I think, 50 years or 25 years with an option of a one-time renewal. Uh, it was a much more constrained approach to philanthropy and of course, Rockefeller got around it by just incorporating in New York, in the state, rather than at the federal level, and just said, well, I'm not going to be controlled uh, in this way, which is what you know billionaires do. Billionaires don't like to be controlled. Uh, they have so much power that it's very difficult to control them, uh, just on the basis that they can use lobbying to influence policy in a profound way that ordinary people don't have access to. And that's where it gets arbitrary. They're changing the rules so the rules suit them. And then they're acting in a sphere where there's already incredibly light regulation at the global level. There's no global state. Uh, So this is, you know, it's not a pirate ship, but it's not a sort of tightly controlled maritime law situation either.
1: I find your critique of transnational philanthropy very persuasive. And yet in the back of my mind, there's always this argument that says that a significant proportion of the world's population is made up of people who are dominated from the day they're born to the day they die. You know, people in countries whose economies have been wrecked by debt or corruption or war, they have limited and, and sort of particular forms of autonomy. But in terms of the power to lift themselves out of the macro conditions that keep them in poverty, they have effectively no autonomy at all. And that's the way of the world, right, or the way of huge areas of the world. Couldn't you argue that substituting a benign form of domination for the cruel form of domination that these people live under is not a perfect solution, as you're suggesting, but it is a morally justifiable one.
0: Yeah, look, I don't want to say we should abolish philanthropy and just like let the world exist as it is. You know, that's a a weird choice. And this is a, a, a criticism that I often get, you know, well, do you want a world without philanthropy? Well, I don't want the world we have now without philanthropy. I want a better world, right? I want a world where there is a stronger, stronger global institutions to ensure redistribution of wealth to people living in severe poverty, fairer terms of social cooperation. Now, in absence of that, I'm happy that there are philanthropists, right? They are saving lives. The Gates Foundation, by some counts, has saved over 100 million lives in the past 20 years. That is something to be proud of. But it's a false choice saying that it's an either or, You know, either have this sort of philanthropy or no sort of philanthropy. We just need better philanthropy every philanthropist should be thinking this, right? They should say, I want to create the conditions in which philanthropy doesn't exist anymore, right? This should be the aim. Uh, A world in which there is global health institutions that are sufficiently funded, sufficiently effective, that they don't need the Gates Foundation working there. So it's not a matter of abolishing philanthropy uh, for the sake of getting rid of it, getting rid of it and allowing malign domination. It's about reforming it and then having a world where it's not necessary or where Philanthropists can direct their benevolence towards things like the arts, right? Things that are very important, but don't affect people's core human rights. Although some listeners might say, well, the arts definitely affect people's core human rights, but let's just take a step back and say, there might be a slight difference between access to the opera and access to vaccines.
1: So in in a world where transnational philanthropy is needed for better or worse, how should it be done? I mean, what, what should the ultra wealthy be doing with their money? Well, there's there's a lot of ways to answer this question, but I think the most convincing
0: one to me is that there needs to be stronger constraints, right? Constraints imposed that enable people who are on the receiving end of philanthropy, those people living in extreme poverty, to have a voice in the way that these organizations run. You know, people on the Gates Foundation board, there should be someone who represents people living in the global South, people who are the final end recipients of Uh, of the Gates Foundation's generosity. There needs to be external observation by something like uh, in the 1990s, an international ombudsperson was mooted for global development where people who have conflicts with charities working in development could have a neutral arbitrator to help bring conflicts uh, to resolution. We need institutions like this at a global level that ensure that the power of philanthropy is effectively constrained and accountable to the people that it's trying to help uh, I don't have a problem with the Gates Foundation funding medical research. You know, We have all, everyone who's listening to this podcast has benefited from the Gates Foundation's work during the COVID-19 pandemic. It was incredibly influential in uh, getting the World Health Organization. It had an imperfect response uh, pivoting towards COVID. It had a large amount of money poured into developing effective vaccines. These are incontestably good things, but we need to do them a bit better. We need to have more accountability, more transparency. We need to reduce the arbitrariness. That's what I'm concerned with. Uh, the power itself doesn't bother me. Power is can be used for good. It's the arbitrariness of power that sets the alarm bells off because sometimes that can go wrong, right? Uh, there, Where there's no accountability, there is room for abuse. And we've seen this very recently. If we look at the uh, collapse of the crypto exchange FTX uh, and Samuel Bankman fried he was a big contributor to effective altruism, uh, which is, you know, about redistributing wealth to the global poor, about long-termism. But he was unconstrained, right? And all the people working in the effective altruist movement have now been confronted by the fact that they were very close to someone who was, for all intents and purposes, uh, the Ponzi of the 21st century, right? He lost, allegedly, billions of dollars of his investors' money by behaving inappropriately. And that has not on to the philanthropic wing of FDX. This is why we need observation. This is why we need accountability. This is why we need more than sort of the light touch regulation that you get in the United States to say nothing of the light touch regulation you get in places that are tax havens, for example.
1: Willem David Blunt. He's a senior lecturer in international politics at City University of London. And in addition to his recently published paper on billionaire philanthropy in the journal International Affairs, he's the author of a book, Global Poverty, Injustice and Resistance. And he also has an excellent YouTube channel where he talks about politics and philosophy and international relations. It's really, really good. And you can find him there on YouTube at Dr. Blunt, or you can check the Philosopher's Zone website for all the information you need. Great to have you company this week. I'm David Rutledge. Bye for now.